This podcast has been modified from its original version and has been formatted to fit this platform. That being said, I am Spartacus, and this is the Film Effect Podcast. Now let's hit that music button and bring this in. How's everybody doing? My name is Ed, and this is the Film Effect Podcast, where we're taking all things film to the full effect. Hope everyone is having a lovely day. Hope everyone is staying warm out there and staying safe. Um, it's been a crazy week, and I'm going to jump into that in a second. But first, I want to let everyone know that they can check out previous episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Breaker, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. The show is also on Facebook at The Film Effect Podcast, as well as Instagram, also at The Film Effect Podcast. If you have any comments or questions, you can always email them to thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. That being said, again, my name is Ed. Welcome to the show. Current events. I mean, there's only one particular situation that I can really talk about right now there's only one thing going on that i feel comfortable commenting on at the moment and that is of course everything going on down in texas um my heart is just pouring for you guys let me just tell you personally thinking about you all i can only imagine how things are going down there i've seen the pictures i've watched the videos i've shed tears I've held back thoughts. I've held back composure. Like I said, my heart just pours for you guys, and you're in my thoughts, and I'm wishing for the best. I'm hoping everything gets resolved sooner than later. And, uh, yeah, other than that, um, just, again, Texas, thinking about you guys. Hang in there. Stay gold. Weekly Recommends. What would you get for a six-year-old boy who chronically wets his bed? All right, so I realized that this past week for me has been pretty hectic between work, knocking out this episode, and just a couple of other loose odds and ends. Um, what I'm really going to do, because I haven't had that much time to actually sit down and enjoy movies, so really, my recommendations for this week, it, it, it's, it's a whole lot of nothing. I'm just going to go down and, and let you guys know what I've watched since the last episode. Um, I checked out the My Bloody Valentine, of course, because the 40th anniversary was the other day. So I popped my Screen Factory Blu-ray and watched that. It's one of my all-time favorite slasher films. Maybe we'll talk about it on here one day. And then a couple days later, I watched both The Hills Have Eyes and The Hills Have Eyes 2. Now, the remakes, not the original flicks. The ones from 2006 and 7. I watched them on HBO Max, and uh, my first time seeing the second film, but the first one, I, I saw that way back 15 years ago or so in the theater, and back then, I realized watching this the, the other day that I'm not the same horror fan as I used to be, because back then, I was all about the gore, which, I mean, to be fair, I, I still do like my gore, but I'm a lot more mature. And I realized that not every horror film 
has to actually go to a certain level. You know what I mean? Like, you don't always have to up the ante. You don't always have to just go the distance to the very top, you know? Not every death or kill has to be something unique or different or something to challenge another movie's death scene. It, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, the days of competition... There's enough to go around, guys, seriously. And watching this again, uh, I haven't seen it since, like, it's it's been, a, it's been a good decade. It's been at least 10 years since I watched it. And, you know, this film did not hold up for me. It really didn't. Um, I remember really liking this film a good bit, but I don't know why this, I mean, I do know why, but... Um, I, I don't know how I could have loved it as much as I did because I used to really like be an advocate for this film for whatever reason. But um, here I am talking about this film like I'm gonna recommend it, but I'm obviously not. So just let me finish it up, wrap it up real quick, and then I'll get to the movie I am gonna recommend. Um, so yeah, it, dude, it's just not a good movie. It's it's crass, it's foul, it's disgusting. It's not even fun to watch. Um, the shit doesn't really get cooked until about 45 minutes into the movie. It's just a lot of just build up and tension, you know, just a lot of bullshit to go with the, uh, the the front end of this movie that they pack in because the back end, because the, the, the second half of this flick is when shit just hits the wall and just unnecessarily brutal kills that, y y you know, the a couple of deaths were done for just pure shock value which no <laughs> like i i don't need that in every goddamn horror movie seriously I, I don't and there's a particular rape scene that a fuck off and b went on for uh, way too long. rather uncomfortable so yeah i cannot recommend either of these movies because the second one was just a big pile of shit I just watched it to tie into the first one, and since I had never seen it, I mean, I already f finished the first film. How could I go wrong with the second? Well, believe me, they're both piles of shit in my book. Backdraft, that's what I'm getting to. This week's recommendation for me to you guys is the 1991 Ron Howard film, Backdraft, which I'm going to be covering this coming May, only because it's the 30th anniversary, and... The film kind of ties into... It's a personal movie for me because I have family that has ties to the fire department. And so this film was kind of a big deal when it came out. And I definitely have a juicy story time for that episode, which, again, I, I plan on doing that one in May. So keep an eye out for that or keep your ears open for that one. Haha. <laughs> Uh, for Backdraft. Uh, that's my recommendation for this week. Uh, I haven't watched anything else besides those four movies. Well, five if you count this, the, the one for this podcast. But, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and now for the movie of the moment. The big picture of this podcast fixture. The main event. It's a little flick about four guys and a girl finding their big dreams and doing that thing they do in the spotlight. 25 years of the wonders, folks. This is That Thing You Do. Guy Patterson didn't have a perfect job ah. or a perfect social life. What's going on down there? Cooking the books as usual, Dad. But what he did have... Oh. Ah. 
was perfect timing. How about sitting in for Chad just for tonight? Why? Just broke his arm. And in one night... That's too fast, Guy. Slow down! Guy, slow down! Guy Patterson is going to take the wonders... From garage. I almost slugged some girl. She had her eye on my Jimmy. To greatness. Here's somebody I want you to meet. Mr. White is with Playtone Records. That thing you do, you know, it's snappy. We'd like to release it. We'd be on tour. Well, Mama, your son who loves you just left us in the lurch. Darlene, you just got promoted. You mean you're gonna start paying me? I didn't say that. America's old wonders. Expensive gorgeous place. We bow and we're off the stage before the applause dies out. It's very important you don't stink today. Hey, I make no guarantees. You guys look great in red. Have I told you that yet? Come on, pretty baby. You got the number seven record in the country. He's got a very pretty girlfriend, doesn't he? Is it serious, you know? Very serious. I'm single. What about the bass player? You fellas look great in gold. Have I told you that? What about Guy there? Oh, he's amazing. Amazing. 20th Century Fox presents... This is Mr. White. Are you sleeping? Just calling to tell you to get your patootie down to the television studio. You're going to be on TV tonight. Oh, wonderful. A story about the time in every life. When the hopes you hold on to... Very special, isn't she? And the dreams you dream... None of this would have happened if you hadn't joined the band. ...become that thing you do. and directed by Tom Hanks. Look fabulous in the black suits. Have I told you that? Hi. Fabulous in the black suits. Alright, here we go. First off, talking about the legacy, they certainly don't make movies like this anymore. To be fair to Tom Hanks and everyone else involved in the making of this movie, they didn't even make them like they did back in 1996 either. This is such a universally loved film all around, from critics to fans to parents to grandparents everyone loves this film that thing you do doesn't have a current rotten tomato rating of 93 percent for nothing with this being the 25th anniversary of the movie i think it's time for a new generation of movie watchers to check it out it's an upbeat picture and my favorite musical biopic ever made it's such a happy film all around and i cannot wait to talk about this movie with you guys today so first time viewing uh, it's, it's just that you see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. Um, didn't see this in the theater. Actually, it took me a few years to get into it. I really, 1996 Ed at this time, I was still finding myself. I was still... You know, I started to wear my, I started to wear Smashing Pumpkins Zero T-shirts. Remember them in the mid '90s? Shout out to Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. Um, that's when I was getting into a lot of Janko wearing, uh, chain wallet dangling. Just I was, we all hit that area in our lives, typically around this time. You know, when you're about 10, 11, 12, 13, and certain things. Anyway, I'm going off topic here. This 
it wasn't until about 98, um, my childhood best friend Corey owned this on VHS, and I believe the story goes, I was actually at his house, and I went, and, you know, I'm just going to Glorious to hang out, like usual, as kids, but he was watching this, and I caught the tail end of it, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and it, it caught my eye, it, it piqued my interest, so I asked to borrow the tape, and... Corey not giving a damn because that's how Corey was. He said, sure, whatever. And took it home and watched it. And the history, and that's it. That's the history of that. That's, And that's my first time viewing with this film. Story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. All right, so the story I have for this one um, involves my late best friend James... Uh, who unfortunately passed away six years ago. He's no longer with us, but him and I were really into music ourselves, and he was the guy that always pushed me, because I've been a drummer most of my life. It was kind of a thing that I really started to pay close attention to when I was about 11-ish, you know, listening to music. Like, the drums would be the first thing I listened for. And I knew I had a way of keeping a beat, and I had rhythm, so, lo and behold, I get behind my first kit, and I'm able to hold a tempo, to my surprise, to everyone else's surprise, and it's been like that since. Um, so, one day, I was going with James, because he was a singer. He was a guitarist first, but he loved to sing. And so, I remember James had an audition, a tryout for this band of, I don't know, they were like teenagers, like probably like two or three years younger than us because uh, we were like I was like 1920 James was a year or two younger than me so anyway we go to these kids house um, they got the microphone and everything set up uh, he goes into the room uh, gets behind the mic and sings Sugar Cult uh, Memory from Sugar Cult that's what he was singing and they asked me he no, that's right. He James mentioned uh, that I was a drummer, but this band was just looking for a singer. They didn't need a drummer; they had one. So James, being James, asked them if I could get behind the kit for that particular song, and so I did. And I drummed to memory, and then, kind of like the way Guy does in the film, I started doing my little do 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 and somehow. This one kid who was paying attention to me, I, I guess he knew the song or knew the movie or what or both, whatever, but he starts playing the opening guitar strum. And it, it didn't really go, we didn't break into the song and then we played like the first, like up to the first, you know, verse. It was just a funny moment. Um, something that I think about when I think about this movie, it makes me think of James and. Yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. It was a fun story. Um, if, if, in case you're wondering, uh, he didn't take the band. They offered him the gig, but he didn't take it. 
um, because he wanted me to replace their drummer. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I like, I had no say in it. I was just giving the guy a ride, but I was his boy, and he was my boy, and I love him every day. So James, James Goldies, shout out to you. I love you, brother. Miss you every day. All right. So let's talk about this film, shall we? Mm -hmm. So we actually opened the film with the first of what I feel is many montages. Um, This is Guy Patterson, played by Tom Everett Scott, who is basically our main character here, even though the film is centered around an entire band. I feel Guy Patterson is the focal centerpiece of this film's story. So it's a montage of him working around his family's appliance store, scored to the fictitious band Norm Wooster Singer's song, Loving You Lots and Lots. Now, in case you didn't know, it's not a real band, not a real song. It's actually a cute little jingle that was composed and put together by Tom Hanks himself. You will learn later on in this episode that he actually had a lot more input into the music of this film than uh, you'd think, actually. So after the store closes, Guy goes down to the basement and he starts drumming along to a Dell Paxton record before we see him cooking the books later on when his dad calls about the lights being left on. It's going to be kind of a running gag in this movie that uh, I like it. Uh, it's just Guy forgetting to turn the lights off every night. So funny visual. The next day, we see Guy go to the local diner for breakfast, and this is where we're introduced to Jimmy, Lenny, Chad, and Ethan Embry's unnamed TB player. That's how he's credited in the credits. They never referred to him by name in this movie, so uh, one of many running gags. A lot of running gags in this movie as well. Um, Just so many elements that makes this movie what it is. I've got so much to talk about after the plot. So stick around. The days of sniffing the dirt are over. And they're all there with Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye, played by Liv Tyler. They're seen trying to come up with a band name while Guy's enjoying his coffee at the at the breakfast bar. Jimmy keeps wanting to call themselves the Herdsmen, as we hear their waitress suggest the Big Tippers, which we see the bass player actually likes. This sets up the dynamic between all the members. Jimmy seems to want everything to be his way, while Lenny, Chad, and TB all seem to be in. Just to have a little fun, you know? On the way out, Lenny tells Guy about their upcoming talent show gig and suggests that he comes to see them play, which he passes on. Guy arrives to his father's appliance store, and then we see the other guys outside with Lenny, Faye, and Jimmy, who are all still debating about band names, while Chad and TB are seen in the background playing leapfrog over a parking meter. This goes on between the two for a couple of rounds until we see Chad in the background do it, and he falls awkwardly, revealing he broke his arm trying to catch his fall. So with Chad out, Lenny and Jimmy have no other choice but to approach Guy at his father's store about drumming for them. Pause. I'm going to talk about the dynamic here real quick between Guy and his father. Um, he's His father's a real pushover, but Guy just takes it every time. And he takes it so much that he's used to it, and now he jokes back about it. It's kind of a routine for him. Um, I enjoy this father-son relationship very much, actually. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. 
Uh, so he directs the guys over to the radio clocks to make it look like he's showing them appliances in front of his dad. But then he agrees to play with them if they buy two record needles and a radio clock for $14.99 on sale. So then we see the guys all together practicing in one of their garages after they play the slow version of that thing you do. We see Guy ask if it's just the one song and then it responds with, Wonderful! which gives Faye a light bulb, and she suggests them calling themselves the Wonders, but it's spelled O-N-E-D-E-R-S, like Wonders, get it, haha. Uh-huh. The next scene is the talent show, which I love Sean Whalen here. I want to na- I want to talk about him first and foremost because I feel his character kind of makes this whole sequence. He's a heckler who we see a few times in the uh, earlier scenes in the movie, and first he's kind of like just he's got this kind of band with him of other individuals who are kind of heckling on with him as he as he's leading the bunch and then you know we see uh these girls singing it's not far away we see a mariachi band it doesn't matter all performances that we see here it's it's just this sean whalen character um just heckling them or getting his, you know, band of fellow hecklers to go with him. And uh, it's pretty funny because after the, right before the wonders come on, the host of the uh, the talent show, you know, he's trying to get the crowd going a little bit and then to buy some time while the band sets up, he tells a joke. He says, uh, hey, how do you sell a chicken to a dead man? You say, hey, would you like to buy a chicken? And while he's doing this, we see Sean Whalen kind of heckling him some more. And then he just snaps. He's like, you just see him just trying to keep the joke going. And he just grabs, he thinks he's covering the mic, but he's actually not. Because we all hear what he says. He's like, I'll kick your ass. It's a funny moment. Just out of nowhere, this sudden outburst. It's always been a funny gag to me. So the band comes on and they start playing the song. Guy being the drummer, leading the tempo. He starts playing too fast. Like, he actually... Adrenaline in the moment. He starts playing He starts playing the song like an up-tempo, even though we saw earlier that it's a slower ballad melody. Band goes with it. There's no time to retcon now. Gotta go with it. The song's starting. So we see the other three guys kind of keep up. And they do a hell of a good job, in my opinion. Uh, we see them... There's moments of the song where it's clearly like... They're struggling to keep up with the tempo, but then it just kind of eventually works itself out. And by the midpoint, I'd say, is when they got this. And it sounds awesome. It really does. It's one of the top scenes, in my opinion. Um, it's, it's over. It's done. Everyone's dancing. They get up. The whole floor is moving. Song ends. The talent show rate the, the the results are in. They get a wicked rating. They win the whole thing. They win the hundred dollar you know reward. They get this guy who comes up on stage with them while they're celebrating. Oh, As a drummer, I can't help but notice how authentic Tom Everett Scott is behind the kit. Like, the man, like, 
he's an actor, obviously, and it's not really him drumming, but watching him drum, like, the dude definitely practiced and practiced and practiced because I got to tell you, he's supposed to be, you know, this jazz fanatic, you know, that's like his music of choice, is a good jazz melody. Let me tell you firsthand, jazz is probably the hardest shit to play on drums because they've got this off-key beat and you know how jazz is and it's it's never the same beat it's always a change up you feel it drumming a jazz song is a lot different than drumming say a pop song or a rock song it's it's more about feeling the music and here i am going off track again i'm just saying though it's it getting back to my point tom everett scott very authentic performance here and throughout the whole movie like i can I know it's not him, but I'd argue that it might be. I don't know. It, it's he's it's pretty goddamn good. And then Jimmy, how the hell is he gonna ridicule guy for playing too fast? It sounds much better up tempo here. So the next scene is guy driving home with his girlfriend Tina, who I left out in the last scene. Tina is actually played by Charlie Starin, and she's obviously like I just said, guy's girlfriend. She surprises him by showing up to the talent show in the last scene. And then here we are now. He's driving her home. And he's just so excited about everything. His adrenaline is still rushing. He's still got just that his nerves are still going. And we can see Tina trying to be interested, but she's just not, you know. And it's just, it's simply a quick transition scene that takes us to the Villa Piano performance, which Jimmy is so into the ballads, but the rest of the band is so incredibly bored with themselves until Sean Whalen requests, play that thing you do. That's what the majority of this scene is at first. It's them playing a couple of their Jimmy's Lover's Lament songs. And it's like that because that's what the man's clearly into. Uh, More on that later. Again, Sean Whalen's here, like I just mentioned. Although he's went from heckler to just authentic fanboy, and of course he has he shouts for them to play that thing he do so he can get the girls dancing. He wants to start talking to girls, but he can't without dancing. So play the damn song, and they do, and it goes great. And then afterwards, we find out that guy forgot to leave the lights on again because we see his father drive up and start talking to himself angrily because, you know, oh, God, oh, Dad, I'll turn the lights off. Oh, sure. He's just mimicking his son, Guy, the whole time while he's just going in there angrily turning off the lights because Guy forgot to. Um, And then we got Villapiano at the bar with Lenny, and he's kind of making stacks of bills and lines up to their payday which was 125 dollars and then he has an extra stack which he calls their bonus why because he tells them that he wants to make as much money off of them as he possibly can he's just throwing it out there very openly like hey i want to keep you here for as long as i've got you guys i want to squeeze as much out of you motherfuckers as i can I guess I have to appreciate a little honesty here, but still, it's it's, it's scummish. Um, oh, another gag I forgot to mention, Oneaters. <laughs> How could I forget that? So it started with the, it started when they wrote out the name. I, I believe it's Lenny who first 
pointed out, says it looks like the Onetters. And then the talent show, the host calls them before they play the Onetters. And then here we go, once again, being called the Onetters. But then Lenny goes with it because he's hurt so much by at this point. At this point, he just says, no, that's the Oneaters. <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, Sean Whalen, he's asking when they can go, when he, where he can find their record. Sean Whalen comes up to them while they're all at their table after their performance. Uh, the bar is closing down for the night, and Whalen wants to know where he can find their record because he wants to buy a copy of it. And that convinces the rest of the guys to record. And at first, they don't really know where to record at. But then Guy steps in and says, Guys, I'm Spartacus. I've got this. He's got an Uncle Bob who normally does church music. But he thinks that he can convince them to record for them if they, you know, just don't swear, which I would they. I don't think there was any swearing going on in the mu- in music at this era. Um, did I mention that this is a film that takes place in the early 60s? I, I should have. This is like 1964 is when this film takes place. So next scene, band recording Uncle Bob's Church. They got it's you know it's old school. It's a one take process. It's not like today where you can just record instruments and parts. This is 1964. This was OG. The way it meant the way it was always done in the beginning everyone in the same room recording under the same one take and that's what they're doing here and you see uncle bob and Faye doing the claps and then jimmy of course when they're done asks when they're going to get their records and uncle bob responds with luke 2119 wednesday <laughs> so villapianos again but with records to sell this time, because we see Sean Whalen get his record finally, and he looks so excited. He looks like a kid in a goddamn candy shop. Our kid waking up on Christmas morning, like this is Sean Whalen right now when he gets his first Oneaters CD, <laughs> or his first Oneaters album. So we've got this, um, there's this girl I should have mentioned also. Uh, her name is Chrissy Tompkins. Uh, we saw her in a polka dot dress at the town show, and now he, she is here showing up again, trying to get with Guy, but wants nothing to do with Lenny. She even asks Lenny if the bass player's uh, into <laughs> She even asks about the bass player instead of, about, instead of him. <laughs> so Tina actually shows up, but as soon as she approaches Guy, he's called on stage to start set up for Villapiano, something we start noticing more and more early on. His rise in fame is getting in the way of any personal affairs that he had had, which includes, of course... Tina. So then Phil Horace shows up, buys a record, and he enjoys the show. And then that's when we get Guy Patterson back at work again, and he's doing his thing at the shop when Horace, the guy who bought the record in the last scene, comes in. We see him pull up in front of the store um, in a camper, actually. And he goes in, and he tells Guy he doesn't want to waste any more of his time. Um... Guy's father is such a hilarious addition to this film. Like Holmes Osborne, the guy who plays him. It's a funny name, by the way. Holmes Osborne. It's kind of a boss name. Uh, he really is a funny character actor who unfortunately never popped up in too many comedies. Like Him reading the ads for his competitors here uh, is a really funny touch to his character. 
we see him reading through the, the paper um, to see the other stores and what their prices are and, and sales and seeing you know how aligned he is. Uh, it's a pretty funny scene. And I should also mention Guy's sister Darlene. She doesn't have any dialogue. We just no, she does actually in one scene. Um, she's just there. She's obviously jealous of Guy and his success. Um, the more we see her, the more obvious her jealousy has become. Uh, she's kind of a background character throughout the majority of this movie, but if you've seen this movie as much as I have, you notice things. And one of the things I picked up on this viewing is just the transition of her. Like I'm talking about her, like like I'm talking about her right now. Like she's a huge character, but she's again a minor background character. Like I even forgot she had any dialogue. So I just noticed her little starting here to the end of the movie there's definitely a change of this background character that only people who have seen the film numerous times would pick up on i don't expect anyone to go into this for the first or even second time and even know anything about what i'm fucking talking about i'm just saying guys it's just things you pick up on little things like i mentioned in the uncut gems episode little things um and so, yeah, Phil grabs the rest of the band and they have Stu in his camper talking business and proposes to be their manager. Shows them a manager contract that he, that he had typed up. He promises to get them gigs in Pittsburgh and Steubenville as well as that thing you do, getting that song played on the radio within 10 days. If he fails, he negates the contract for them. That's his deal. So, Lenny is the one who finally gets the band to sign. You would think that they would collectively sign. Jimmy, of course, has his reservations because the more we learn about Jimmy throughout this movie, it's not good things, guys. It really isn't. Um, Jimmy character is really problematic. Not problematic. This Jimmy character is really not a good guy at all. Really isn't. And so he's backpedaling and he's kind of kicking around like I don't know and Lenny's like fuck it you're signing he's signing I'm signing we're all signing where's the pen that's literally the dude's reaction and here we go uh, next scene is quick one Tina at the dentist she gets called by her dentist this big honk looking dude who clearly sh- this this guy, whatever. If, if he's a dentist, then I'm an astronaut. Calls her in. And it's just here because we there's this look that Tina gives him. And it's like, oh yeah. He's, that We see what's going on here. The stars are aligning between these two. And we're about to find out that Tina... We pretty much only got one or two more scenes left with that character. And poof. So... Next scene is big scene. That thing you do. Uh, we so the next scene we got Faye. She's approaching a mailbox, sending away some mail, and she's got her headphones on. And that thing you do starts playing on the radio for the first time ever. So she freaks out, nearly forgets to put the mail in the box. Comes back and does that, and keeps running away, and and turns around and runs back. 
we see TB come out of a Army Surplus shop, and Faye runs into him, and he's got his headphones on, and she tells him what channel they're turning on. Two of them start freaking out together, and they start running down the town, and then they all come in the guy's place, guy's appliance shop, and they all come in there, and they're freaking out. Guy turns on a couple of radio clocks. Uh, there's a funny quick scene with TV uh, smacking this big radio, trying to get that to turn on when Guy's father yells at him, and then he finally gets it to turn on, and he like kind of does this quick, like, ah, like he yells at it real quick, and it's pretty funny stuff. Uh, Lenny and Jimmy show up. They just pull up out of their car. Jimmy just leaves his car double parked in the middle of the street. They run in. Everyone's running around like an idiot. Like a, just it. It's a hap- It's like one of the happiest scenes this movie has to offer. They're all so thrilled. It. You know, I I can't relate to that feeling. But you know, the first time I heard my podcast on a big major platform, I kind of got giddy. So. I understand. I can relate slightly. Um, And yeah, Guy's father doesn't care about them being excited. Doesn't care. He just cares about his store. He's yelling at them all still. Uh, Guy's mom's in the background on the phone and it rings and she's telling whoever's on the phone with her that yes, we're hearing it. We're listening to it right now. And then we've got Darlene who is slowly but surely getting more and more pissed. Just her eyes say all that she needs to tell. Lenny comes up and tries talking to her. She ain't having it. That means Lenny turns her that that drives Lenny to start embracing with this cardboard cutout character of this woman for a record sale. And it's you know, like I said, they're all running around, they're all overly excited, as they should be, and it ends with Guy Patterson running up to the camera and yelling, I am Spartacus. Uh, another shot of the store sign being left on before Guy is seen talking to Tina about their recent success and tells her that they have an upcoming Pittsburgh show, but she's getting her crown replaced on her number 15 molar that'll take all day, she says. So yeah, if you can't tell already what's going on here, this is the final scene with Tina in it, and she's mentioned later on that she started seeing her dentist, so yeah. Um... He tells her that the the song was played three times during the day. It's pretty damn good, and they should be thankful for they should be thankful to to Phil for them doing so good. Um, he stuck to his word all along, and that helps with their trust in him. Um, it's little subtle things like that that builds on character that I've taken notice and I've learned to appreciate more and more in my movie watchings. <laughs> If that's even a thing. Movie watchings? Sure, we'll go with it. Uh, Tina hanging up on Guy during his Spartacus bit. It's a funny-ass thing. He does the whole Spartacus thing to her once again. But she starts blow-drying her hair and just hangs up on him. Kind of coldly. And that's it. Hanging up on Guy. Hanging up on her role in this movie. So long, Charlize. We hardly knew you. And then we get the Pittsburgh disaster sequence, which... Kevin Pollock, guys, as Boss Vic Koss. Hit me! That's his big running gag. That's why I said that real quick. Uh, Kevin Pollock, uh, big character actor. Uh, kind of more than a character actor in my book, uh, now that I think about it. In such gems as Casino, House Arrest, End of Days. Oh, God, I'm starting to spitball bad ones. 
Kevin Pollock from The Usual Suspects. Uh, Kevin Pollock from... I said casino. Shit. Grumpy old man. Grumpier old man. I mean, chances are, if you've even seen his face, you know... Okay, that's that guy. That's Kevin Pollock here. So, he's the host of this Pittsburgh show. It's a doubleheader. They have a, apparently a 2 o'clock and a 6 o'clock show. It's them and, like, a handful of other bands performing. Um, one thing I noticed here is Kathleen Kinmont is his secretary. Uh, Boss Vic Koss. His, uh, the woman that's standing behind him, lighting his cigarettes and pampering his face. Yeah, it's Kathleen Kinmont. Now, the majority of the people listening are like, who the fuck is Kathleen Kinmont? I'm about to tell you who she is. Um, I know a lot of people listening have probably seen Halloween 4. Even if you haven't, you know Michael Myers. You've probably heard of the death scene, probably the most famous death scene in that movie where he rams a shotgun through a woman and it goes through her and the door, kind of pinning her to the door to mirror the first film with uh, Bob with the knife. Uh, yeah, this is Kathleen Kinmont, same girl. Uh, cops do it by the book. That's that's her from Halloween 4. And then she went on a, a year or two later um, as the bride of the reanimator. And after that, you know, I, I wish I could say she had huge success, but she still had success. It just wasn't like, it wasn't like, I don't know. It, it She, obviously, she's in this film. So success still going by 96. Uh, the scene, it, it, it needed to happen. So real quick, what happens in this scene is they go to play. They're the first band on. First of all, the mics aren't working. Second of all, the uh, symbols start falling apart, uh, or the, the symbols start collapsing. The, the the stands aren't you know holding everything up you know the way they're supposed to be held, apparently, and it's it's a disaster. Like you, we don't actually see we we see the first like five seconds of it before anything even starts, and then we cut to guy describing it to Phil outside and he tells them that it was such a disaster that they were getting booed from the parking lot or something like that and yeah so it had to happen because it shows that the band can overcome their worst nightmares it's such an embarrassing disaster but the fact that they can move past that and garner the success that they're about to have it speaks it it speaks (laughs) So, yeah, Phil and Guy are in between shows now, uh, walking down the street in Pittsburgh. You know, Phil's trying to strengthen that, you know, low morale that Guy now carries. He reminds him he's the backbone, and it's true, too. He tells Guy that, look, you're the drummer. You're the backbone of this band. You hold the tempo. Get your shit together because this is all on you. If you can't compose yourself, if you can't do the song, if something happens to you, the rest of the guys are basically screwed. So, suck it up. We'll move on from this performance and we will make 6 o'clock a much better gig. So, he tells him that he needs some culture and he takes him inside this um, this this different restaurant. I don't know where it is from, but they just go in and that's beside the point because the reason for it is 
Mr. White is here. We find out Horace has basically set up a secret meeting between Guy and Mr. White, who is the A&R representative for Playtone Records. He offers the band a contract and to take over as their manager from Phil. Guy, at first, kind of doesn't want to do that because and he's young. He doesn't understand the way it works, you know. He's all about dedication. Phil's been our guy. He got our song spinning. He's been there, and we don't want to leave him. At least I don't, and I'm comfortable enough in my band to speak for them on that level is basically what's going on here. Mr. White kind of takes offense to it. Even though he says he doesn't, you can kind of see this twinkle in his eye like, oh, the ball's on this bastard. But then Phil stops the whole situation and, and, and calms Guy down and reminds him, look, this guy's going to take care of you. He's going to put you in a full-fledged tour, you know. And that's what basically gets Guy to kind of perk up, like, oh, an actual rock and roll tour? Like, okay, you know. But I've got to talk to the guys first, and that's what really impresses Mr. White. He's like, ah, okay, talk to the rest of the guys and not speak for them. That is smart. You are a smart man, Guy Patterson. And so that is it. Hanks introduces himself to the band backstage before their second gig. Right off the bat, he has them change the name because it's so confusing. He said, it's, it's not working. This whole Wonders, the O-N-E, it, it doesn't work. It's confusing. Change it. So that's what happens. From now on, you are the Wonders. As the Wonders as in, I wonder what happened to the O-Neaters? Correct, Lenny. So yeah, um, he breaks down You know everything going on in the situation now, how he's the manager how they're going to be touring for them for the summer, and then they're going to go into the studio and record another record. And then that's when Jimmy, he's obsessed with this goddamn B-side, All My Own Dreams. That's one the, the separate side from um, That Thing You Do. Says that uh, if you pay close enough attention, Jimmy mentions that song a lot, actually. Like, damn, I, I feel like three or four times that song gets mentioned throughout this film. Things are going by with... with uh, Mr. White and the band, uh, kind of, uh, TB kind of stops and announces at that moment that he is leaving the band at the end of August because he has signed up for the Marines, and that is when Jimmy, <laughs> and that's, it's, it's a funny moment here, it's when Mr. White says, is there a mutiny already? <laughs> and then afterwards, when uh, right before they go to leave and break off and they go to play their second gig, two things is what White says to two people. He throws the glasses to Guy and asks him to see what the world looks like through those. Because that's going to be Guy's trademark. The sunglasses, of course. And then he looks at TB and says, and you, Semper Fi. And that's it. Scene ends. I love that touch. For you, for those of you under a rock who don't really know the U.S. Marines motto, that's what it is. Semper Fi. <clears throat> so and it's funny too because for a good portion of my life watching this film i thought he said simplify so the more you know pick up on things after you watch it enough times oh and then he mentions Faye. if jimmy wants her on tour she now becomes the costume mistress whatever the hell that is so next scene guy calls his dad tells him what's going on uh yeah <laughs> Dad ain't happy. Dad's pretty pissed. Hangs up the phone. He says he's going to go tell his mom how his son's left his family to go become a rock star. 
And then there's a funny moment here where he tells Darlene about, he said, good news, you know, you just got promoted. And then she says, it means you're going to start paying me? And he says, I didn't say that. And the look on her face that just goes, ooh. It's fucking, it's a funny moment. Uh, here we go. First day on tour. And they receive their Playtone Records. That is their official records with the Playtone label. Lenny and Guy are so starstruck towards Diane Dane and Freddie Fredrickson. It's Mr. Downtown to you guys. It's a pretty catchy tune that he sings in the next scene. Uh, anyway, back to these guys. Uh, they're just acting so starstruck in this moment here um, as they're just basking in the first day of the Playtone tour. And uh, the Wonders play their first set. Before they get on stage, uh, White tells them that their goal is to get the attention of the stogie-sniffing disc jockey K.O. Bailey, who says, who he calls the biggest cootie I've ever saw. He wants them to get his attention so that he plays their song the next day, obviously, because he's the second biggest disc jockey in the market, I believe he says. But cootie he calls him the biggest cootie and there's a reason for that there's a couple of other moments that i'm kind of i'm gonna kind of elaborate on just i've got more hold that thought jimmy mentions an encore he says no encores jimmy you unplug bow they smile and they get off stage um and then they're all wearing red suits so this makes mr white tell them you guys look good in red i've ever told you that before and this becomes Another gag in this damn movie. I love the gags that are going on. There's never too many, and they're all just as good as the other. Uh, at this point, it's worth mentioning that they are number 93 on the Billboard charts at this point. And then we get a montage. Like I said at the start of this breakdown, there's a lot of montages going on in this movie. This movie is good for montages, and it's good for running gags. So this one is just stardom, really. We see the guys first running around a big street stencil of the U.S. map. Uh, and then we see TB getting set up with a soul singer by Faye. And the two go around the ride carnival rides. We see the band signing records for fans at, at the same carnival. Chad coming to Patterson's and answering the help wanted sign to take Guy's position. More on that in a little while. The guys chasing horses at the fair with the record now at number 21 to end said montage. Excuse me. So now they're in Illinois, and there's a set of Come On and Dance With Me in front of Screaming Girls that showcases the band appearing to mirror the Beatles. It's the whole song. I like this song. Lenny sings this song, I believe. And the band socializing and fanboying at a local bar afterwards. They got... Jimmy being starstruck some more with Diane Dane at her table. He's telling her that it, you know, he's telling her all about the band and their single blowing up. And I'm sure that he's talking about it like it's all his idea and his big brainchild. And then we see Lenny playing cards like a hot shot with these two older guys. We see guys sitting down with Bobby Washington and asking him about Del Paxton. Bobby Washington being a fictitious jazz musician. In this film, I believe he is played by... Hang on, it'll come to me. The man was on the wire. It's not Delroy Lindau. He wasn't on the wire anyway. Why am I saying that name? He kind of resembles him. Um, Robert Wisdom. 
That's who plays Bobby Washington. Robert Wisdom. That's who it is. And then TB slow dancing with his Chantreline's girlfriend. She's that soul singer I mentioned in the last scene. Mr. White and Faye are now talking about Jimmy. And White asks her about Guy. This is when we find out what happened to Tina. Like I said, that Tina went off and wound up with her dentist. This is what Faye tells uh, Mr. White. Then the next day on tour, we see Diane Dane getting flirty with Jimmy while she's rehearsing before her set later on that day. She kind of goes over. He's watching her set on stage in front of the piano when she kind of goes over and just sits on his lap. Now, granted, Faye's not here watching, but still, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's safe. It's fine. I'm not like, throw up the flag or the torches. He's cheating. He's a scumbag. No, but... Just remember these things, okay? Little subtle moments. Just remember them, folks. Because I sure as hell do. Um, and then before their next set, they're wearing gold. And this promised Mr. White to ask, Have I ever told you boys you look good in gold before? <laughs> During this particular set, we see White receiving a note that he reads. And then after the performance, White informs them all that they are the fastest growing artists in Playtone history because as of tomorrow, they've got the number 7 record in the country and because of that, they are immediately leaving tour and heading to California, dodging screaming girls asking for shades as they're leaving in the process. Things you notice. Jimmy ignoring Faye when she's being accidentally separated from the band by security. But Guy goes to save her. Jimmy's nowhere to be seen. He's already in the car. Guy sees what's up. It's like Jimmy's so drowned in fame that he's forgotten about the love of his life. It's wrong, Jimmy. That's wrong, brother. Uh, now they're on the plane. And Faye is sick. She's sick with Guy, not Jimmy, taking notice and offering to help. Uh, we got White telling them first that they have to pay homage to Saul Siler, the founder and chairman of Playtone. And we're going to meet him in a little while. All Jimmy wants is to record while White is telling them all about his plans with them, which excites the other guys, but not so much Jimmy. And then we get this funny moment here with Lenny kind of intentionally trying to piss off White because White, all he wants to do is sleep on the plane. But Lenny sits down next to him and first he's messing with a bag of nuts, which takes the wrapper from him. Nope. And then he starts crunching down wherever he's eating he's he's making a very loud obvious crunch sound which makes white say you know what lenny why don't you go talk to the pilot go see the pilot tell him it's your birthday <laughs> and then he goes and does that it's a funny ass moment uh and then we get Faye at the ambassador hotel which is where we find out the band is staying and we are introduced to lamar with two r's who is old school let me tell you about lamar this dude is old school as they come he's all about chain and command he's all about you have a certain set of job of of jobs to do and you are to do them he is all about ladies first he is all about manners and mannerisms he is all about just politeness and respect and this guy is a scholar let me tell you lamar is a scholar 
So, yeah, I mentioned it's just Faye there. Where's the rusted man? Well, they're filming a quote-unquote major motion picture. And it is a film called Weekend at Party Pier. It's literally the band in the background playing in sailor suits. And they're credited as Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. We slightly notice white kind of flirty with an extra on set. That is the second thing that I've noticed and spoken on. And there will be another one coming up. Jonathan Demi cameo. Jonathan Demi is the director of the Silence of the Lambs film. He is also the producer or one of the three producers of this of this film. And a good friend or was. Unfortunately, we lost him four years ago to cancer. And so he's in this as a director for this movie scene. And it's funny because he yells for the music to stop. Everyone keep dancing. TV points out that the music stopped and Lenny's like, no, you're supposed to keep going and pretend to play. They keep dancing and then this guy named Goofball. I, I, I love to see the rest of this movie. This weekend at Party Pier, like, I just want to see it. Like, I wish that they actually filmed it and, like, made it into a bonus feature or a future release, but I get it. Back then, there wasn't, there was no DVDs and stuff, but I guarantee you, I can almost guarantee you that if this movie was made today, they would have made this most likely and kept it in there as like an added feature. Like, see the actual weekend at Party Pier. That would be a cool sight. So yeah, it's... Meanwhile, as I'm telling the story to you guys, the, the, the story that the band is learning is just how it really is how Hollywood plays the game and how they are just pawns and it's kind of fucked up. It's kind of a dark tale but told in a light manner sort of. Does that make sense? It it made sense. It sounded like it made sense as I was saying it but it might not when you're listening to it. Um, But no, it because this movie is so like friendly. Like this movie is really, it's a dare I say family friendly movie This it's PG as I'm going to mention in a little while there's nothing you know it, there's nothing terrible really this is a safe movie <laughs> um, and yeah like but the things it's talking about you know corporate greed and you know the way if you're in the music the way if you're a band just the whole industry, how it just sucks you in and spits you out with nothing, you know, that's, that story's being told right in front of us, but it's told in such a uplifting manner that you don't really notice that, you know, overall, so yeah, Jimmy is complaining, oh, I should also mention Mr. White comes over and tells them that the good news is they get to keep the wardrobes, so the, yeah, we got Jimmy complaining about it the whole time, uh, White tells him that if he wants, you can always go back to the fair and do the tour with them that they're in North Nebraska. So, yeah, he's got a point, too. White, not Jimmy. Jimmy's just a coin bitch. That's all That's all Jimmy is throughout this movie. Um, and then we got this quick radio appearance with Paul Feig where he asks them to say hello. They literally say hello, and he cuts them off and tells them that they can leave the microphones on the table on their way out. That's it. And then they go to another radio station, uh, KJZZ. This one, a little more active. We have Clint Howard playing the DJ here. 
and he asks them all about their influences. Lenny says Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack shooters, while the others answer with the people that are being associated with. Like, for example, TB mentions um, um, his girlfriend's name. And, of course, Guy mentions, like, every breathing freaking jazz musician you can think of. And then Del Paxton. And then that cuts to uh, Clint Howard and uh, Guy kind of tells him about how his dad got the record for him when, they were, when he was eight. And he played it in the school band. And, yeah, it's that's it. And then the next scene is... Saul Siler, the owner of Playtone, the head honcho, they are at his mansion and he's being basically consumed with media and people who were just there to take pictures and interview him and ask questions and bullshit and you can tell that these people that are there, these PR people, are just basically friends, people he knows like because they're having conversations about the dude's freaking wife, you know? So, yeah, and then uh, he kind of comes over, throws his arms around the, the wonders so they can get the pictures taken and just kind of briefly says in passing, these are my new sensations, the highest selling you know record, blah, 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 and then goes away, goes to his deli table. The man has his own freaking deli table in his mansion, and while he's eating a deli sandwich with like mustard all over his mouth and shit's disgusting we have jimmy coming over and he kind of wants to propose them getting together and talking about writing more music because he wrote that thing you do and all the other songs that they perform it kind of throws the rest of the guys under the bus to take for his own personal gain it's fucked up this is jimmy and this pisses Saul off. And this is the one moment I'm actually happy that Saul's pissed off. And he's like, are you serious with this? Get this fucking guy away from me. And that's what happens. White's like, what is Jimmy doing? Oh, my God. Excuse me, Miss Shiler. James Mattingly II, lead singer of The Wonders. I wrote that thing you do. I wrote many other songs that I think we should make an appointment and share. What is Jimmy doing? Jimmy. What in the bloody hell is this? Oh, this is during my lunchtime? Yeah, like I got time on my hands. You want to get Fabian away from me? Lenny, by the way, is noticing the receptionist here, and they hit it off. Uh, cut to the coffee shop. Jimmy's saying Diane Dane warned him about the bad things that come from fame. And when he does this, it makes Faye give him a look. A sort of look that, all credit to Liv Tyler, she does not shake this look away for the rest of the scene. It's kind of this depressing look. And I know she's coming off of being sick, but this ain't from sickness because she's happy prior to J Jimmy mentioning this shit. And so after he mentions Diane Dane again, like I said, the look. Um, and yeah, Lenny's date, the receptionist from the last scene, she shows up unannounced out front and wants to give... Lenny arrived on the town, so he takes off. Um, Jimmy left earlier. Faye says she's going to go upstairs and lay down. Guy, Guy says that's a good idea, and that just leaves Guy and TB. And he just asks TB if they want to go just explore the town together. And that one, while they're getting up to go pay the bill, that's when we see TB approach two guys or no, three Marines that walked in earlier 
who he introduces himself to the three Marines and tells them that he's going to be joining their squad at the end of August and that he can do 200 push-ups. And they say, drop down and give us 100 now. Because that whole Marine mentality, guys, I don't... mm." Guy's like, what the fuck? And he just takes off by himself. Oh, real quick, before that, before TB and, and Guy leave, um, before Faye even leaves, she mentions, okay, it's the most ridiculous hand-fed excuse for someone I've ever seen in my life. She says that Jimmy is always upset because he's so smart because he's always tested at genius levels. Like she actually says this bullshit. Yeah, it's... Yeah, exactly. And after she leaves, uh, Guy says to TB, if Jimmy's a genius, then I'm Utah. And TB goes, who's Utah? And he Guy starts to say, he's the second... Uh, never mind. <laughs> and Because he knows it's a lost cause. Gets up and that's when they go. Pay the tab. Goes out front and Guy asks Lamar where the good jazz bars are. He says, you want to hear some real good jazz? Some real good jazz. So, to help Lamar figure out just how much jazz Guy Patterson knows, he asks him who played cornet for Jacques St. Clair on Vital Stats. And without even thinking, he says, Scotty McDonald. And so get in the cab, get in the goddamn cab, and tells the cabbie, take this man to the blue spot. So the blue spot is big jazz scene. It's a big jazz club. And it's just guy getting stupid drunk. Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks' wife in real life, plays uh, Marjorie. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, Guy. He's just a freaking child inside this club who's amazed by so much. And then he meets Del Paxton. He's so completely starstruck over this man. And they hit it off. He buys him a drink. They're shooting the shit. Time goes by. It's just them two closing out the bar together. And yeah. Del goes to leave. And he leaves with... Word of advice to Guy. He says, you keep playing and watch your money. That's Dell's advice to Guy. You keep playing and watch your money. It's pretty good advice. So the next morning, Mr. White calls a very hungover guy who's still in bed and tells him to wake up, get everyone together because they're going to be on the Hollywood television showcase that night. So Guy rushes to get to the studio. When he arrives, all he sees in the dressing room is Lenny's girlfriend, the receptionist from the night before, Jimmy. He's sick from his nerves, but tries to play it off, saying that he thinks Faye gave him something. Uh, But we know what's going on. Lenny, uh, he tells everyone that he's going to Vegas after the show at the top down to get hitched. And then TB is MIA. All we see is him at Disneyland with the Marines that he uh, saw earlier. Uh, But that's okay, because Mr. White's on it. And he tells the guys that... He was leaving in August anyway, and that he already had a new guy lined up. And this is where we're introduced to Wolfman, and the guys ask if uh, he can handle their tune. And he says, I think I can handle your little tune, Junior. And he takes his bass and plays his sick little 15-second solo or whatnot. They're just shocked in silence and walk away one by one. And so, yeah, 
Then we see Faye, whose sickness is suddenly gone, as she's shown getting dressed up and escorted into the theater by a very young Colin Hanks. Uh, I can appreciate Tom getting everyone routed up for this film. He's got friends and family, apparently. And then we get a shot of Guy, his family at home, watching, um, watching the show in front of the TV, along with Chad, who has seemingly just joined the family now and has replaced Guy altogether. Because between this and him getting the job, it's like they never explain what's going on here. They just kind of think it's funny. Drummer taking the drummer's place, so let me take yours. And, you know, uh, it's it's not really clear if he's there dating Darlene or not. I personally don't think that he is, but it's just an observation. That's all. I love how the show is hosted by Hank's Bosom Buddies co-host, Peter Scolari. And his guest is Walter White himself playing Gus Grissom prior to their performance. And then before they all get out on stage, White being White asks the boys, have I ever said you look good in black? Because, you know, they're wearing black suits now. And they get up on stage and right before they start playing, Lenny asks Guy how they got here. Guy replies, I led you here for I am Spartacus. Then they played that thing you do for the 20th time this movie. And yeah, this time... The performance, it's its huge. This performance right here is the film's main attraction. Yes, we've heard the song a million times, all jokes aside though. like This is like what the whole entire movie has led up to. This moment right here, this showcase. And so they're going at it. And the band is now visually introduced to the country during this certain performance. It's time for America to meet the wonders. Let's make them look good. So that's what they do. They show shots of each member with little text below. Introducing everyone to who is who, we get the first shot coming from Shades, who is, of course, Guy. And then we got Lenny, who they call Leo, Wolfman, Too Scary. And then Jimmy, in parentheses, Careful Girls, he's engaged. And then we see Jimmy notice it on the teleprompter, but kind of just shrugs it off. He doesn't shrug it off, but he notices it, but he's still, being the pro that he is, finishes off the song without a hitch. Um, and then we cut to, after the song, Guy's family again. His dad is acting like his son. He's got the sunglasses on. He's banging some wooden spoons like they're drumsticks. And he's singing that thing you do. And then watching this again, I never noticed this before, but Darlene is actually burying herself in pillows with tears while this is going on. Because it's like, you're watching Guy's father do his thing. But then if you notice, after watching this film so many times, your eyes wander and freaking Darlene sitting there crying, burying herself with pillows. It's funny as shit. Um, and then we cut to backstage. Jimmy is flipping out because of the engagement announcement. Says that they're not engaged. They were never engaged. He's asking who told them that they were engaged because it's not true. Um, and then the downfall begins here. Jimmy. From now on, you stay away from me. Wasted thousands and thousands of kisses on you. Kisses that I thought were special because of your, your lips and your smile and all your color in life. I used to think that was the real you when you smiled. But now I know that you don't mean any of it. You just save it for all your songs. Shame on 
on me for kissing you with my eyes closed so tight. Let me tell you guys, this speech is so, so powerful, and I applaud Liv Tyler for nailing it. It's, 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 dare I say, the strongest performance of this film right here. And everyone leaves one by one. Uh, then it's just leaving just Jimmy and Guy together. Jimmy looks at Guy and says, take those stupid sunglasses off. And then right before he walks out, Guy turns and says, why couldn't you have left her in Pittsburgh? Before walking out and... We're back at the studio. It's Jimmy, Wolfman, Guy, um, and Mr. White. And Jimmy's packing up his stuff, saying that they're going to play his songs or it's no dice. And White wants to remind him that they signed a contract and they have to do as he says. And that means that he's going to record that thing you do in Spanish and none of his lover's lament crap, as he puts it. He wants something up-tempo, something snappy, which leads to this. I I quit. I quit. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I quit, Mr. White. And afterwards, White talks to Guy about their band falling apart, and then we see Lenny getting married in Vegas. His wife is smoking another cigarette as they're getting hitched. It's like another running gag in this movie. The receptionist, uh, we don't see her a whole lot, probably like a small handful of scenes but every single one that woman's got a cigarette lit in her hand and her getting hitched on the altar no exception nope wolfman goes home since he's no longer needed for the day and then white tells guy it's very common tale of them being one-hit wonders he allows guy to stick around in the studio for a little while but he can't do anything about them having to be out of the hotel that afternoon i hope lenny gets back to his stuff in time <laughs> Because <laughs> he's still in Vegas getting hitched. No one can get a hold of him, but they've got to be out. Before leaving, he tells Guy that he's the talent. Lenny's the fool. Jimmy's the quote-unquote talent. And Faye's special. No mention of the bass player, continuing his role of being more of a background character the way a lot of bass players are. And then we see Faye, who's packing up and getting her things together. And inside of her box, she sees a picture of her and Guy with Jimmy kind of off on the side. Um, it's Who took this awkward-looking photo anyway, and why is she keeping it? It's weird. Um, but yeah, um, all jokes aside, she takes scissors and she cuts Jimmy out of the picture, leaving it to just being a picture of Faye and Guy together, and that's the picture that she keeps. And then we got Guy back in the studio. Um, he's just playing this awesome drum solo that he calls i am spartacus and as he's recording not re he's not recording he's just playing because the guy is in the master room asks if they want if he wants to lay it down he says nah and then out of nowhere in comes del paxton he's recording in studio c with willie walker and figured he'd stop by and they do a duet so something to be said about the way Guy acts all happy and excited from when he was looking gloom and doom right before Adele enters the room. Um, it's Tom Everett Scott, man. Just wondering why he never got more roles because he's 
fucking phenomenal in this movie. He really is the Guy Patterson character. It's it's crazy how that guy didn't get more work. And this duet here is just a solid, solid scene. One of my favorites. I love this little jazz duet between the two going on. Dell's piano versus Guy's drum. Put them together. It's just it's an awesome, awesome, soothing jazz number. That I love it. And then we got Guy rushing back to the hotel to check out. He and Faye embrace. He tells her Dell says that he has the chops to make it in L.A., so he's going to stay there and try, become a permanent West Coaster. Faye asks if he is in love and eerie and tells her that he thought so. She says Tina wasn't right for him and asks if, he, if she was a good kisser. He says, yeah, but it would be ungentlemanly to elaborate. She suggests that he visits next time he visits Erie before she tells him that none of this would have happened if it weren't for him joining the band. Before she gives him a kiss goodbye and leaves. In typical movie fashion, he ends up running out to her while she's waiting for her ride and asks her when the last time she was decently kissed. Like, truly, truly good and kissed. Mirroring the exact same way she asked the question back inside and how he responded initially with, shoot. She says, Dave Gamelgard, New Year's Eve 61, 1961, before the two share a kiss together. That he goes in for as Lamar looks on happily. She tells Guy they should have done that a long time ago as they go back into the hotel together. Asking Lamar of course to watch their things as he tells them that that's what he does. And then smiles at the camera breaking the fourth wall to close this film out. But first we've got cards here letting everyone know what's going on with the group after uh, their success. You see Guy and Faye Patterson marry on April 30th, 1965. They raised four children in Venice, California before moving to Bainbridge Island, Washington. They founded Puget Sound Conservatory of Music, where Guy teaches jazz composition. And then the photo that they're showing here, while they're showing this text, is the exact same photo that Faye cut out at the end of the movie. And then we got a picture of Jimmy. It says that his new band, The Herdsman, made three gold records for the Playtone label. It's nice to know that he's still stuck around. And now he's a record producer in L.A. The bass player served two tours of duty in Vietnam, receiving the Purple Heart for wounds sustained at the siege in Quezon. He is now a building contractor in Orlando, Florida. And finally, Lenny is the manager of the Golden Eagle Hotel and Casino in Vegas. And the man is currently single. Alright, so the film was released on October 4th, 1996 from 20th Century Fox. Let's take a look at the box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film made $34.5 million worldwide against a $26 million budget. And it went on to make $6.2 million domestically opening weekend. Opening up at number three. I mean, really looking at these numbers here. I know this movie made at least 20 to $25 million additionally with just home media revenue. Um, VHS, this was the first 
Divix, if anyone remembers that format. It was very short-lived. It came out around the time DVD came out. Speaking of, it also made its money from DVD sales, Blu-ray sales. It's not yet on 4K, unfortunately. But, yeah, it was the first Divix ever released. Divix was, um, it was a disc format, like your DVD, but the catch was, the big gimmick was that you can only watch the movie once. After the film was watched, like, it was kind of a Mission Impossible. This Blu-ray, this DVD was self-destruct in five seconds, kind of an ordeal, like, you just couldn't go back and watch it anymore. Kind of a, um, I guess it, it erased itself. I never personally had any Divix. I knew of one person who had a Divix player, and I don't even know how you could collect Divix movies if you could only watch them one time, but he had a small collection. And, um, yeah, I always thought that that was the weirdest format, and still to this day, when I think about Divix, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see why it didn't last. So, yeah. All in all, this movie made a little profit but i you know obviously it wasn't enough to warrant any sequels there was no continuation going on it was just a one and done feature and nothing wrong with that you know tom hanks wanted to make a film and he did his thing and this is what it is and i and i know that sounds so boring and ordinary but there's really not much to this film's release it was a passion project of Tom Hanks. He got it put out there. It made a little bit of money for the studio. And, you know, next. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, so you're going to go far, kid. You ain't going to believe this. Well, you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching. Every day was like a privilege. All right, so there are three people that I want to talk about that were either first-timers or relatively new to the business with this film. Uh, the first, of course, is Tom Everett Scott, who plays Guy Patterson. Um, as far as I know, this was his first feature-length film, uh, but it wasn't his first, like... It wasn't his big break, his or it was his big break, but it wasn't his introduction to the world because he had roles on Law and Order, the CBS School Break Special. He appeared on several episodes of Grace Under Fire. Um, so yeah, a, a few small roles before taking on this project, and then after this, he went on to do American Werewolf in Paris, which yeah, I haven't seen that movie in a while. That was one that I actually saw in the theaters. That was the movie that I remember the Bush Mouth remix was the big song from that film. And the CG, even in 1997, I think that film came out on Christmas Day, actually. Just a weird release. And yeah, it was just a really heavy CG mess. And I, I can only imagine how the effects look now. Because even 24, 25 years ago or so, whenever I saw this... They didn't hold up then, <laughs> and they looked like dog shit then, and I cannot even imagine how they look today. Um, that's kind of a hard movie to find these days, so it's not like I'm actually setting out to look for it. And then he went on to do One True Thing and Dead Man on Campus. Dead Man on Campus will be an episode that will happen down the road. Uh, that's kind of a problematic film, 
that, again, I haven't seen in a while. Um, I remember loving it, but I also remember loving The Hills Have Eyes, and you know how I felt about that, rewatching that this past week, so yeah. And then his career kind of just went down a little bit. He was in Boiler Room, Van Wilder, and then he did Air Buddies, Snow Buddies, Race to Rich Mountain, Mars Needs Moms, Parental Guidance, a lot of kids' films. Uh, La La Land. Oh, that's right, he was not La La Land. And then, of course, he was in Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul. And that was the last big thing that I think he's done. And that was about three or four years ago. Regardless, he's still doing work today, just not as much as before. Alright, next on the list here is Charlize Theron. Now, this wasn't her first movie, but it was one of her earlier roles. I believe her first film was a Children of the Corn sequel. I'm trying to pull that up right now and see uh, how that is. If that if there's any truth to that. Yup. Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. She did the year prior to this. She played an uncredited follower. And then in 96, she did, of course, this. And her big break, which was Two Days in the Valley a film that I have not seen in quite some time, so I can't really comment on it. Although the following year is when I noticed her, was when she took on the role of Keanu Reeves' wife or girlfriend uh, from The Devil's Advocate. And another movie I haven't seen in a while, but that was the movie that introduced me to Charlize Theron. Um, I do remember that. So... It's Charlie Starin. Do I really have to go down her career and remind you guys who just who the hell she is and what she's accomplished? I don't really think I do, but this was one of her you know earlier roles and Tina, just kind of a small but big role, especially for the first half of the film, I'd say. And then Colin Hanks, of course, who I mentioned earlier, who was the escort for Liv Tyler at the big show at the end. Colin Hanks, of course, Tom Hanks' son. His big break was in Orange County, which would come out about five or six years later after this film's release. Um, and then, yeah, he just kind of went on from there, doing, popping up in films such as Whatever It Takes, Get Over It. Of course, like I mentioned, Orange County. That's right, he was in King Kong. And then he was also in Untraceable, House Bunny, I mean, Colin Hank, Vacation, that's right, he was in Vacation in the beginning. And then, of course, recently he was in both of the Jumanji films. So, his career, obviously, is still going places. I mean, it's Tom Hanks' son, it's Colin Hanks. We love him. If you follow him on Instagram, you gotta love the guy. Uh, he's pretty active on there. Uh, I follow him. Yeah, the guy's still going, so... All right, next up here, we have Swan Song. How's that for a swan song? All right, so I want to acknowledge Robert Ridgely, who passed away about four months after this film's release from cancer, unfortunately. Uh, Robert Ridgely, you're probably like, who the hell is that? Robert Ridgely was in this very briefly. He was the announcer for the Hollywood Television Showcase. Um, not... You know, he's, he's kind of a that guy. If you look at him, you'd probably be like, okay, I've seen him. I think I've seen him before. Um, he was in The Ref. He was in Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He was in Philadelphia, of course. So there's that Tom Hanks connection. 
And then his final role was in Boogie Nights. He played Colonel James. Um, I remember him from Beverly Hills Cop 2. He plays the mayor. So yeah, um, like I said, passed away from cancer on February 8th, 1997. Oh God, that's weird. That's when my grandmother passed away. Um, in Los Angeles at his home. He just turned 65 years old before dying. Um, very unfortunate. Um, it's just, I, I fucking hate cancer so much, as well as everybody else, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, Robert Ridgely. Rest in peace, sir. So let's meet the cast. Hey, you guys. Everybody focus up, okay? All eyes here. I would like to announce that Ben and I are planning to produce a musical number from Godspell for the talent show tonight. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Ben is producing. I'm directing slash choreographing. I'm only speaking from personal experience, but if you can't carry a tune, don't come into the audition environment and waste our time. For serious, okay? Okay, and bring a lot of movement clothes, AKA jazz shoes, dance belts, lycras, et al. And seriously, FYI, you guys, this is not an excuse to get out of your regular activities. This is an excuse to do some good musical theater. So be prepared, be enthusiastic, and leave your bullshit attitude and baggage at the door, because we don't need it. All right, so the film stars Tom Everett Scott as Guy Patterson, who I just talked about. And then we've got Jonathan Sheck as Jimmy Mattingly. All right, so I know off the bat Jonathan Sheck because, well, I'm from Baltimore, and so is he. Baltimore-born, baby. Matter of fact, he's from Edgewood, which is a small town outside of Baltimore. It's about roughly 15, 20 miles outside of the city. Um, it's a lot closer to me, where I live in the suburbs of Baltimore. Uh, Edgewood is literally a 15-minute drive from here. In fact, my kid brother lives right outside of Edgewood. So that's where he was born and raised. Um, I know he dated Christina Applegate for a while, and then they got married. Um really Applegate is the tie that I remember him from I remember that relationship for the longest time even though they were only married for about five six years I just remember seeing pictures of them at all the big Hollywood events and stuff like that um, he didn't have the biggest of careers uh, prior to this he was in the Doom Generation and that's a big caught film for all you geeks out there with James Duvall and Rose McGowan as well. Um, that is a actually that's a Greg Araki film. I, I feel like we'll be talking more about Greg Araki down the road. Um, real quick, in case you don't know who he is, he's um, really heavily involved in the queer movement. Um, a lot of his films are, I mean, controversial is one thing, but he did this. He did Smiley Face, um, and then a film that, his last film actually that, that he did, is a film that I really liked. I actually own it on Blu-ray. It's called White Bird in a Blizzard. It's a film that has uh, Shailene Woodley, uh, Eva Green, Thomas Jane is in it, um, Angela Bassett. It's a really powerful movie that deals with um, just life as a teenager and um uh, a girl's mother disappearing um, and people being suspect of this kind of like a small town if you remember scream the plot of that dealing with um, Sydney Prescott's mother kind of was a small town you know deal and things happened to her and it became a thing and that's kind of what happens in white bird in the blizzard um, 
But yeah, I feel like we'll be talking about Mr. Araki down the road. Uh, until then, let's see. He was in the movie Hush, going back to Jonathan Sheck's filmography. Uh, this film Hush that came out a couple years later with Gwyneth Paltrow and Jessica Lange. And then he kind of just went down and he was in things, but he was his roles were a little more scarce um, throughout. And then... About 15 years ago, he just did a string of direct-to-video sequels appearing in 8mm 2, like 8mm needed the sequel, and then a year after that, he did Roadhouse 2, like, what the fuck, really? And then horror fans might remember him from the Prom Night remake, he popped up in that as the killer. And then from there, I remember him from Ray Donovan, he was on there for a small gig, there was an independent film uh, called Jackals a handful of years back that I remember him being in. Um, and then he did TV roles. Like I said, Ray Donovan was another one. Uh, Sleepy Hollow, I remember him uh, popping up in. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow, it's right, he's Jonah Hex. And then that's basically what he's doing now. Is He's got that Jonah Hex character in the new DC Universe on TV. So, still getting work. Next up, we got Steve Zahn as Lenny. Steve Zahn, of course, from Modern Family, HBO's Trim, uh, Reality Bites, Crimson Tide, uh, Forces of Nature, You've Got Mail, Happy Texas, Joyride, uh, Daddy Daycare, Employee of the Month. He's been in a lot of movies. Um... A Perfect Getaway, which I feel is a very underrated film that didn't get enough play. And then he was the father in the um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies. So, and that is actually, I, I, it's funny, I was showing my daughter this the other night, um, Madeline. We were watching this for her first time, and in reference to Steve Zahn, she's like, I know him from somewhere, and I'm like, where would you know Steve Zahn? So I'm going down his filmography, and I'm like, oh, there it is, right there in front of me. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And she's like, yup, he's the father. I'm like, yeah, he's, he popped up in a handful of those movies. So, <laughs> And then rounding out the wonders, we have Ethan Embry as TB Player. He doesn't have a name. He's just the uh, Wonders bass player. Um, Ethan Embry, of course. He used to go by Ethan Randall. When he was a child actor, I remember seeing him pop up in um, Dutch. Is the most Dutch is his most popular role from being a child, in my opinion. And then that same year, he did All I Want for Christmas, and then kind of went away for a little while, but then came back a year before this film, and of course, Mark with a K in everyone's favorite film, Empire Records. Uh, one of my favorites, Vegas Vacation. He was Russ Griswold or Mr. Papa Giorgio, if you're a big enough fan of that movie and get the reference. Um, and yeah, nowadays... Oh yeah, and of course, I can't talk about Ethan Embry without mentioning Can't Hardly Wait. I mean, it's Preston. It's Preston. He loves shirts. It's Preston. <laughs> Um, and then minor roles here and there, Sweet Home Alabama, Timeline, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, that's right, he was in that, Eagle Eye, uh, Cheap Thrills, uh, one of my more recent favorite indie films, The Guest, he pops up in, 
And he was also in The Walking Dead for an episode. I remember that. He was in it just to show up, have a couple lines of dialogue, and then he had a pretty gnarly death at the end of the episode by getting his face bitten off by a zombie. I remember that one. Uh, so yeah, that rounds out the wonders. And then, of course, we have Liv Tyler as Faye. In case you have been living under the biggest rock in the world over the last 25 or so years, Liv Tyler is the daughter of singer Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. If you don't know who Aerosmith is, I can't help you. I'm sorry. Um, of course, she got her start being in her father's videos for Crazy. Um, she appeared in Empire Records. Um, speaking of that film, so a little reunion between her and Ethan Embry here. Never thought about that, actually, believe it or not. And then she's in Armageddon a few years later, Dr. T and the Women, One Night in the Cools, and then I'd argue this is her biggest role, the biggest role of her career. One would argue Armageddon, I'd say you're full of shit. It's definitely Lord of the Rings, and she's in those films. Um, yeah, she's Arwen in those movies. And then she followed it up with Jersey Girl. Personally, I'm a big defender of that movie. I I really, really like Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl, so you're not going to hear any shit from me in terms of that film. So she followed... It's kind of a weird choice, though, to follow up that big career, that, I mean, that big, you know, saga with a little Kevin Smith flick. And then Rain Over Me with Adam Sandler, The Strangers. She was Betty Ross in The Incredible Hulk, um, The Ledge... Uh, Space Station 76, and then more recently she showed up in Ad Astra. Um, next up we have Tom Hanks, who is pulling triple duty here. Not only is he the director and the and the writer, but he's also one of the stars, Mr. White, of course. Do I really have to remind you guys who the hell Tom Hanks is? I mean, it's Tom fucking Hanks, the coolest cat in the world. The funniest guy of the 80s. I love Tom Hanks. You love Tom Hanks. Who the hell doesn't love Tom Hanks? Please, at me if you hate Tom Hanks because we have a conversation to be had. Uh, Charlie Theron as Tina. Talked about her. Bill Cobbs as Del Paxton. One of my personal favorite character actors. What hasn't Bill Cobbs been in? I mean, his career goes back 50 years almost to the taking of Pelham 123, Trading Places, The Cotton Club, Suspect, Bird, The January Man, New Jack City, Roadside Profits, The Bodyguard, Demolition Man. I mean, the list goes on that um, Hope Floats, I Still Know You Did Last Summer, Enough, A Mighty Wind, Night at the Museum. Yeah, those Night at the Museum films are probably the last big thing he's been in. I mean, you got to remember the man's 86. He will be 87 in June. So I, his career is obviously winding down. I mean, even in this film, he looks a little on the older side. But, I mean, Bill Cobbs is still going, guys. He may not have the biggest roles this day. He might not have the biggest roles that like he used to. But, I mean... When you're a character actor like him who has literally hundreds of credits, then I think you can take it down at this point of your career. I think it's okay to just enjoy yourself. You know what I mean? Um, Giovanni Ribisi as Chad. No stranger to the movie world. Showing up in Saving Private Ryan, Avatar, Lost in Translation. 
He had earlier roles in The Wonder Years. My name is Earl. Friends, he was even on that show. His sister, Marisa Rabisi, was in Dazed and Confused. Um, Kamish, My Two Dads. This fucking guy was on the new Leave with the Beaver. <laughs> wow. The things you learn, even recording the podcast, I'm learning things out. Damn. Damn, you go, boy. Not bad at all. And then rounding out this cast of characters, we have Chris Ellis as Phil Horace. Chris Ellis, another one of my personal favorite character actors. He has been in everything. He's been in, I argue, bigger roles than Bill Cobb. Days of Thunder, My Cousin Vinny, Ghost in the Machine, Apollo 13, Con Air, Wag the Dog, Godzilla, Armageddon, Love Liza, Catch Me If You Can, The Island, The Devil's Rejects, Fumble Dick and Jane, Transformers, Live Free or Die Hard, G-Force, The Dark Knight Rises, Grace Unplugged, The Guest, that's right, he was in The Guest also, Jezebel, The Show, The Oath, this man is still going. Uh... And then in television, Chiefs, NYPD Blue, Murder One, The X-Files, If These Walls Could Talk, Her Costly Affair, Millennium, Underrated Lance Hendrickson Vehicle, Millennium, that film, I mean, that that show, yeah. Uh, Alias, NCIS, JAG, Line of Fire, NCIS New York, The Unit, Ghost Whisper, Veronica Morris, for Christ's sake, I mean, Chris Ellis has been in everything, guys. He is definitely a that guy. Uh, and again, he's Phil Horace. He is their original manager in this movie before everything gets turned over to Mr. White. And that wraps up the cast for that thing you do. Let's talk about the crew for a moment. Well, my friend, this is crew. But don't even think about it. You don't look like you could hang, Jermaine. The name's Jamal, and I'll fuck your crew up. Who are they? Who are they? So like I mentioned before... This film was written for the screen and directed by Mr. Tom Hanks. It was produced by Jonathan Demme, Gary Gutzman, and Ed Saxon. Music. This is really what I wanted to talk about in this section. Music by Howard Shore. Now Howard Shore, he did all the com- the uh, composition pieces in the movie. He did all the musical, the, the musical numbers for this film. However, we have to talk about Tom Hanks and Adam Schlesinger here because they're really the two characters or they're really the two people that elevated the music in this movie and made the soundtrack what it is today. Uh, Seriously, like uh, Tom Hanks, start with him, that song that we heard in the beginning of the movie, that Loving You Lots and Lots, yeah, that was all written and composed by Tom Hanks. He did that himself. He, you know, he was in charge of just laying out the music. This was his movie. So, of course, he wanted to have a say in, you know, how the music was going to get played out in the movie. Um, uh, And then I really want to talk about Adam Schlesinger, who is, was, unfortunately, the uh, founding member of Fountains of Wayne, that that Stacy's mom song. Yeah, that's Adam here. Um... He did the uh, backing vocals and also wrote the lyrics for them and the music. Unfortunately, though, um, I hate bringing this up, but COVID-19 took his life a year ago on April 1st, 2020. Um, He died of complications from the disease, and the surviving members of Fountains of Wayne reunited to perform an online one-shot concert as a tribute to him a few weeks later. 
Um, but as far as the movie goes, he's the person who wrote and did that thing you do, the song. That's all his brainstorm. That all came from him. Uh, the Wonders, um, Hanks, even Hanks, like the, the all the music that was heard by, you know, Freddie Fredrickson, the Santralines, Diane Dane, they're not real people. Just so we're all on the same page here. Like these are all fictitious bands and artists because this is all set in like an alternate world, you know, where 1964 is it's the same but it's not you know it's it's an alternate universe it's played out for the film um piggybacking to hanks he actually wrote those songs mr downtown that you hear the hold my hand hold my heart from the chantrelines the uh diane dane my world is over song drive faster from the vic birds that we hear earlier in the pittsburgh performance um that's all written by Tom Hanks. He wrote and composed that shit, guys. Like, he had a lot to do with this movie. And, yeah, in closing, back to Adam. Uh, the song was written by Adam. Uh, he didn't expect his song to be chosen, but he tried it as a personal exercise. Uh, Mike Viola sung the song, and he does backup vocals, just like with Fountains of Wayne. Uh, the song was actually put out as a single, and it didn't really, you know, it wasn't as successful in reality as it was in the film, of course, but it was moderate, peaking at number 41 on the Billboard 100, uh, sorry, the Hot 100, as well as number 22 on the Adult Contemporary chart, uh, so it was kind of a minor hit in late 96, uh, other countries, the UK, Canada, uh, a little bit later, February 97 is when it broke out in the UK, Canada, in late December. So, yeah. And then in 2000, I thought this was interesting doing my research. On, August, on April 25th, 2017, three quarters of the actors who played the Wonders, Tom Everett Scott, Jonathan Sheck, and Ethan Embry, performed the song live during a surprise appearance at the Roxy in L.A., the occasion was the goddamn Comedy Jam, a live show series in which comedians tell funny stories about a meaningful song and then perform it with a live band. Comedian and show creator Josh Adam Myers persuaded the actors to perform the song with him. After initial hesitation on Scott's part, Myers managed to persuade him with help from the After Jam producer Jason Gallagher, who happened to be Scott's brother-in-law. The other actors soon followed suit, with Gallagher helping them learn how to play the instruments, because remember... They are actors and don't really play, although, like I mentioned before, there is an argument to be made about Tom Everett Scott and the way he handles them sticks. Seriously, I'm convinced he is a secret drummer. Um, however, Steve Zahn, who played Lenny, was unable to make it uh, due to living in Kentucky. Comedian Jeremiah Watkins took his place on lead guitar while wearing a cutout mask of Zahn's face. And then on April 20th, on April 10th, 2017, Embry posted a video of himself playing the song's bass line. It is now apparent that the video was a teaser for the event, which went down two weeks later. I kind of remember that, actually, that video being posted, because Ethan Embry follows me on Instagram, and I follow him. And I kind of remember that being... Because it's not a whole lot... You know, these actors don't talk about this movie, let alone tease it or... or, or you know, doing things like 
Ethan here was doing with the bass line. You know, that never happened, you know. So, yeah. And then, of course, rounding out the rest of the crew was cinematography by Tak Fujimoto, and it was edited by Richard Chu. All right, finger licking good. It's finger licking good. Finger looking good is a brand new category for the show that I've added, along with another one that's coming up in a little while. This is, of course, just me running down my favorite scenes or moments from the film. So, that being said, uh, I've got a few. Uh, the first being the guys, the, uh, Faye and the rest of the band hearing the song for the first time on the radio. I love that scene. It's just a feel-good scene. Um, having been in a band myself, you know, it, it was nowhere near. I, I'm not even going to say, like, we were anything. I, I throw that term around loosely. I was in a band, but we just were a band who had couple of originals and a handful of covers never even played a live a, a live set together it was just us for a few months in a practice spot that we rented out and yeah it was fun but then it was done <laughs> so um it's just a feel-good moment it really is and it's a fun moment um i love just the uh it's just a fun scene to watch it really is uh, the blue spot scene, because personally, I'm such a huge jazz fan, as I mentioned in the breakdown. I love jazz. I love jazz. I love everything about jazz, from its cool, calm, rhythm collection vibes to just the history behind it and where it stems from. Um, the blue spot, the bar in this movie, obviously not a real place, but it you know it the whole sequence i just love the music i love seeing that interaction of the very drunk giddy tom everett scott as guy patterson kind of just fanboying over del patterson um it's a fun scene it's a very real scene and of course bill cobbs is a very professional guy and just really adds to the scene adds to the dynamic between these two and um, it's one of my favorite scenes of the whole film. And, and then rounding out the my favorite moments of the film is the Guy and Dell duet. I love this scene. Um, just Guy jamming. I am Spartacus. His little piece that he does in there. You know, and you know how the scene plays out. He says that he's in there recording with Willie Walker, and he's like, "Can Willie Walker play with us?" And he's like, "Nah, let's make this duet." And then they play I Am Spartacus together, and they lay it on track, and it's a really good scene. I love this piece, um, and again, I love Tom Everett Scott's just position and the way he plays and handles himself behind the kit. Um, very convincing. I swear that guy's a drummer. I'm, I'm convinced he does drumming, even though he denies it. You ain't fooling me. Um... So yeah, that's my finger-looking-good favorite moments from the movie. My biggest takeaways. Mr. Madison, what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points 
and may God have mercy on your soul. Let's start with corporate greed. From the way they're treated at Villapianos to their treatment at Playtone. Example, when they visit the head of the company and what happens there when they meet Saul. All that happens It's just... Their 15 minutes of fame in Hollywood really is a telling story. Um, their rise and fall really does make the movie more interesting. Like, real-life stardom, it feels like they come and go at the blink of an eye. We see this just like Jimmy's... No. Just like White explains at the end of the movie to Guy, it's a very common tale, one-hit wonder. And that's kind of the moral of this film is, you know... Not every success story goes on and lives forever. You know, not bands come and go. That's that ties into what I just said about the the whole moral. Um, what this film is really about. Um, it's kind of um, seize the moment. You know what I mean? Kind of a um, just take advantage of it while you got it. Um, just make the best of what you can while you've got it because it's not going to last forever. And it damn sure isn't going to be there as quickly. Or it's, it's damn sure not going to be there for as long as you think. And so, yeah, this movie is kind of an eye-opener. The entire cast of this movie is perfect. That is probably the biggest takeaway watching this again. I honestly can't think of another film with a cast where everyone's roles are played to perfection. Everyone's in on the film's tone, and it never feels like the overall tone has shifted away from us. Even towards the end, when the band breaks up and everyone goes their way, it's it's what happens. It's a, like it. I keep on circling back to that line. It's a common tale. It really is, and it's it's kind of just. Uh, I keep on thinking of a phrase that's coming to me, but I can't get it. It just goes away when I go to speak. Um, it's it, don't ever take things for granted. You know, it's it, there's a lot to be said and a lot to be learned from watching this movie. <laughs> and then finally here, my biggest takeaways, uh, Tom Hanks is such an incredible director. Now, uh, this wasn't the first thing that I've seen the man direct. I remember before this, years before this actually, when I was still a kid, um, not that I wasn't a kid when this came out, I was a, a lot older than I was whatever, I'm rambling again. Um, Tom Hanks directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt, an episode that he's actually in. It was the first thing that I have actually seen Tom Hanks get killed in. Um, he dies in that episode. Um, very grisly, too. And so, yeah, I I was aware that he directed, and I had seen, you know, I was familiar with that episode prior to seeing this movie. So, yeah. But all in all, he's went on to have one hell of a career. And he's probably one of the biggest success stories of all time. All right, so my other new category for this episode is alternative versions from another dimension. So here I'm going to be talking about the film's alternate version, of course, because there is a, an additional 30-minute longer director's cut of this that is Tom Hanks... It's his cut. It's the way he intended this movie to be played out. Um, and I'm also going to be circling back here when something else I was pointing out during the breakdown. And I'll just get that out of the way right now and talk about Tom Hanks and his sexuality in this movie. Because in the theatrical cut, we have 
a couple of subtle moments where it's, if you're looking close enough, it's it's there. It's right in front of your eyes. Just the obvious signs that Mr. White is homosexual. But in this extended cut, they really tell you, they, they, they really lay it on you like, yeah, this guy is gay and like it and there's nothing wrong with that and again it's just it, it's kind of weird that the studio had this subplot cut out and i get why they did it you know because with this being family oriented and whatnot but on the other hand it's like come on really i guarantee you if this film came out now this subplot would have stayed intact was would have never even been considered to be on the chopping block but yeah, we actually see Tom Hanks, Mr. White, get into a vehicle with his partner, played by Howie Long, whose role was completely cut in the theatrical version. He's not even hinted at. Um, he's nowhere to be seen. But yeah, NFL defense lineman Howie Long plays Mr. White's lover. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a scene towards the end. Also in this extended cut, we get more on... Tina's budding relationship with her dentist, Mr. Collins. Um, there's more interactions with Guy and Faye that just builds up to their big moment at the end of the movie. Um, there's more camera time devoted to the bass player and his relationship with one of the singers from the Chantrelines. Um, in the theatrical cut, this is kind of you see a couple of moments where he's kind of like, he's got a crush on her and she thinks it's cute and is kind of reciprocating feelings. Well, in this version, it's it's laid out there for you. Like, yeah, these two are into each other. Have at it. And then finally, there's a whole different ending for Guy Patterson in this cut. Um, of course, in the theatrical version that we watched, he becomes a drum, a studio drummer. Um, on the recommendation of Del Paxton. But in the director's cut, he actually becomes a disc jockey for the jazz station KGZ, KJZZ, which is the Howard, the Clint Howard scene from earlier when they had that whole talk where, where guys naming off all the inspirations and whatnot. He takes over that gig and records a documentary series of interviews with legendary jazz musicians. So in this version, you know, we definitely take the whole guy in jazz thing and elevate that again on top of other things. We just add more to it. Plot-wise, story-wise, it makes much more sense ending the film with Guy going down that road. You know, at the end of the theatrical cut, he stays in LA for a very specific reason. You know, but then when we see the text, studio drummer, like, uh, I guess it makes sense because of, you know, the whole conversation that happens in the scene before this. But I just think him taking over the jazz station and then doing the documentary series is a much more fitting ending for Guy Patterson. And so, yeah. That is the alternate version. To find that version, uh, you can find it online if you rent it or buy it. Uh, if you catch the, if you buy the Blu-ray on Amazon, it comes with both versions. That's the version that I have is the Blu-ray. Um, it has both cuts on the same disc, so just $14.99. I'm not promoting anything. I'm just saying 
It's nice and cheap. It's worth the pickup. Go get it. Before it goes into the vault, all Fox properties now became Disney's last year, so you know how Disney loves that fucking vault. All I have to say is get your copy now while you can before this becomes a very expensive piece. Um, and yeah. Oh, and by the way, you can actually watch this film right now for free on YouTube.com. It is one of this month's free films. So I guess check that out before the end of the month. And yeah, have at it. My mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Nothing. Nothing at all. If anything at all, I'd lighten up the Jimmy character throughout the movie. Again, if I had to seriously change anything, that would be it. But otherwise, I think that this is a perfect movie. And having watched this a couple of times this past week, I'm pretty confident by that statement that, yeah, this is a damn near perfect film. And before I was given this four and a half... This is a five-star film. Left all day long, baby. Five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Uh, like I said, I've, if anything, Jimmy's got to lighten up in a couple of those moments. But all in all, it works against his character, and it makes sense. Ah, is it safe? Is it safe? Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. So safe you wouldn't believe it. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. It's very dangerous. Be careful. Alright guys, nothing to report here. This film's as safe as they get. So, moving right along. The last word. Alright, let me break it down to you right quick. Andre say he catch any apple ball anybody can throw. Coffee say that's bullshit. You a buster. Andre say roll up, bitch. Coffee say I'll give you all my gun if you catch this ball. He threw the ball. Andre called it. Andre say pay me my money. Coffee say you do a cheating bitch. No way. Coffee say you a motherfucker. Okay, I got it. In closing, what more can I add in talking about this movie that I haven't already said for the last hour and a half to two hours of this episode? I mean... As far as musical biopics goes, I, I can't think of a better film than this. You know, I know there's a lot more in-depth, serious movies out there about people that are more important than this fictitious band from the 1960s. But you got to remember that this is meant to be seen as a fun movie. You have got to stop taking shit so seriously. Um, yes, there is a serious message that this movie demonstrates but overall the way it's portrayed and, and played out I mean you've got to just let things go and enjoy it you've got to enjoy things you know just uh, savor the moment that's the expression I was looking for earlier savor the moment so yeah um, I love this movie so much I've already told you guys how I feel about it throughout. You know, if you if, if 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 you've gotten to this point and you are still confused as to where I stand on this movie, <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> Seriously, ah, uh, 
And finally, this movie is sponsored by Playtune Records, who will sign you up and spit you out faster than a no-needers wonder. You too can and will experience fame at the blink of an eye and strum of a chord. Just don't interrupt Saul Silo's sandwich-fueled lunch with your selfish ideas and the sky will be the limit, just like it was for Eerie's own The Wonders. All that being said, this film definitely gets the film effect seal of approval, and that'll bring things home for this show. One down, many more to follow. I'll be back with the Before Trilogy later on in the week. I've got a very busy week coming up, to be honest with you. Um, I've got to knock out these three films and do a whole big episode on it, which I'm fully committed to doing. I've already started it. I uh, cannot wait to talk about it and share it with you guys because these films are just incredibly amazing. And I think that the viewers who know what I'm talking about will agree. And then I've got a couple of episodes coming up which will start having special guests. So I'm getting things prepared for that, guys. I have an episode coming up on The Birdcage, which I'm doing solo. But then a week after that, I am doing Heat with my good friend Sean Elliott, Kid Schmoove. Him and I are going to be talking about that film for what I can only imagine will be at least three hours. Expect that episode to be the longest episode of the podcast. And that being said, um, next week, the Before Trilogy. Probably, realistically, that'll drop Wednesday, Thursday. But it'll be next week, 100%. I'm not holding off on you guys. It's just I wanted to do this episode today to hold you over until that episode comes out. So this is kind of a bonus holdover episode until I get to the Before Trilogy, which is going to be Wednesday, Thursday, like I said. Um, And yeah, that's going to wrap things up for this episode. Um, Again... I'm on Facebook.com at the Film Effect Podcast, Instagram.com at the Film Effect Podcast, previous episodes, iTunes, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Breaker, Podbean, Overca- uh, Pocket Cast. You know, I'm on, this podcast is on so many platforms, it's not even funny. Uh, if you're able to, five star reviews help with the algorithm so damn much and i will be so thankful i'm already thankful if you're listening to this episode still that you're here and not turning away you're you're finishing you're sticking it out with me and finishing the thing through so good on you for that thank you so much you guys are the best um like i always say stay safe don't be stupid wear a mask take care of one another if you're in the texas area seriously i have extra love for you guys Stay strong. Don't let that bitch Yuri get you down. You guys are better than this. You are going to come through. And at the end of the day, you motherfuckers are going to prevail because you are Texas and no one does it better than you. Right? Am I right? All right, cool. All right, guys. Well, next week, see you back here. Same podcast station, same podcast time. Talking about the Before Trilogy. Alright guys, take care.